Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you this morning. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm not sure how many of you love history. I'm a, I, I love, personally love history. I'm a big history buff. And uh, I remember growing up, my dad, who loved history as well, would try to pass this love of history along to his children. In the first few years of my, first 10 years of my life, lived in uh, the D.C. area. And so I remember, you know, he would travel, he would, every Saturday we'd go to one of these battlefields around Northern Virginia visiting, uh, learning about the Civil War. And, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, whatever. But, you know, eventually I started really enjoying it. And so, uh, you know, a number of years back when my wife and I decided to homeschool our kids, uh, we, you know, all of our, we got, we got, all of our, all of our kids got a chance to experience both the public school, homeschool, and Christian school, private school. So they've got a, they got a full experience. But uh, when we started homeschooling, one of the great benefits of homeschooling is you have a lot of freedom to do different kinds of things. And so one of the things I wanted to do was take my boys to do the same things that my dad with me did with me. And so I found some couple battlefields around the area. And I remember they were young. Uh, I was like, hey, we're going to go visit the cow... Battle of Cowpens Battlefield down here off uh, I-85. I think it's in South Carolina. And um, it's actually the battlefield. If you remember the movie The Patriot, the last battle of the movie The Patriot, it's that Cowpens Battle was, was part of, mirrored that, that entire uh, battle sequence. And so I thought it'd be so cool to bring my two young boys to, to bring them to this battlefield, to experience history, history come alive. And so we go there and we watch the video that was made in 1972 and, uh, you know, with, with really bad actors. And then we, we go on this giant field that supposedly this great battlefield happened. And I'm just trying to make it really exciting for them. Now, this happened and this happened. And, and they're just like picking grass, hitting each other. And I'm like, come on, guys, isn't this awesome? I'm like, can we go to Chick-fil-A? You know, I'm just like, I wanted them to understand the significance of this history because I, I wanted them to, to feel a, a greater sense of love for their own country. And I, I know that history is important because if you don't understand history, uh, you're not going to be able to recognize the problems of the present. And uh, history teaches us about life. It teaches us about government. It teaches us a lot of things. And so I bring up history because the passage we're going to bring, we're going to be studying today references a human event that took place 3,800 years ago between God and a man named Abraham. We can read about this account in Genesis chapter 15. And this account is when God, uh, he, in chapter 12, he calls Abraham out and makes a covenant, a covenant promise to him. But in chapter 15 is when he really uh, solidifies this, this promise and this covenant and um, promises to bless all nations, to bless him, to bless all nations through him, and to that this promise he gives him is to, is to give him a, a, a land, uh, to bless him and all the world through him, and to give him a nation from him. And so there's a land, seed, and blessing promise that God receives from Abraham. And this is a significant event. And you might be asking yourselves, okay, this is 3,800 years ago. What does this have to do with us now? Well, that's what this passage is all about. Because when God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, what he was saying is, listen, from the very beginning, I, God had a plan for humanity, what his desire was for us, 
for, us, for, him, for him to partner with us and for us to represent him to this world, to be fruitful and multiply and to, and to reflect his image across all creation. And so what happens is when, when, when humanity falls from Eden, there's something that God is saying, I want to restore what was lost. God could have said, that's it. I've had enough of you. I'm going to start all over. But he says, no, I want to redeem humanity. And so he reaches out to this man and to Abraham and says, I'm going to, the blessing that I want to do from the very beginning, I'm going to do through you and your offspring. And, and that's significant because the promise that God gives to Abraham is really the longing of our own souls. That, that's a key word this morning is the word promise. The promise that God gave to a man to say, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. And I think inside of every single one of us, all humanity, there is a desire to receive blessing. The idea of, of a relationship with God and, and this idea of the, the disharmony that exists between us as human beings, that we want to feel a sense of belonging and love and, and unity. And, and we're, we try all of our different efforts and ways to accomplish what we lost in Eden. Whether it's man-made religion or man-made government, we're trying to get back to a sense of the good life, the fulfilled life. And what, what Paul is trying to point out in this passage is the only way you get to the promise of Abraham is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now again, the context of this letter. Paul's written this letter to this church. People are coming in teaching false doctrines. They're saying, listen, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. And Paul is going to make, make this argument that the blessing and the curse that we see in the law and the blessing given to Moses, that, that, that comes by faith and not by the works of the law. The law that these Judaizers are telling these people to, to submit to does not accomplish the blessing that God promises. And so he's going, to, he's going to explain this and say, listen, the very thing that you long for, remember, circumcision happened after the covenant promise. And that's in, that's in Genesis chapter 17. The promise that was made to Abraham is greater than the sign of, of the covenant. And it's better than the law. And so what I want to do this morning is, is essentially, here's the main idea. You are invited, we are invited to partake in God's great promise. God made a promise 3,800 years ago to a man in the Middle East to say, I'm going to restore this world to the way I always wanted it to be. And that's been the story of God throughout history. And Jesus Christ was, was the God-man who came to fulfill this promise. And so this passage we're going to read today, I'm telling you, when I make the sermon calendar, you know, way back when, months ago, and I mapped this out from, I can't remember when we started, but all the way to August, it's like, all right, how, you know, I'm going to a certain amount of weeks to every passage. And this was one, as, the, as I got studying, I really wish I had three weeks to teach this because it's so, it's so deep. And, and one of the things about Paul's letters you'll understand is the first half is very doctrine heavy. The last part is usually practi practical heavy. Well, this passage right here is there's, there's some heavy theological principles that he's going to be teaching. So I'm going to do something different in my sermon this morning. What I'm going to do is first start with all the biblical principles. I want to teach you a little bit about just the ideas, the theology, the biblical theology that Paul is explaining and describing in this text. Then we're going to look at a picture, the picture of, of this promise 
that Paul is giving to say, I want you to understand the difference between the law and the promise. You know, the last week when Dan was preaching, he was talking about the law leads to the curse, but the faith leads to the blessing. Well, now he's going to use the same terminology, the same ideas of, of law and, and faith or works and faith to show that you can either get the promise of God or miss out on the promise of God. So that's what he's doing here. So, so we're going to talk about the principles of the promise. Then we're going to look at a picture of the promise. And then finally, we're going to end our time together talking about the practical implications of this promise. Because I do think the things that Paul talks about are, it, it's applicable. You know, did you ever, you ever start hearing someone talk about theological ideas and you're like, okay, I know this is good, but so what? So what? So what is a great question to ask? Because I believe this, that belief in theology, if you understand theology, it should lead to the right kind of behavior. And I think that, that there are some very practical implications for this doctrine that we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. We're going to read the first, um, the first you know, ideas here that are doctrine-based. Let's, uh, let's read verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises, now listen to how many times promises is made in this passage. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance or the receiving of the promise comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so there's a lot here. I'm going to give you four basic principles of the promise that we're going to see in this, in this text. And the first one I just read is this. The promise is greater than the law. The promise is greater than the law. He uses a human example saying, listen, when you make a binding contract with someone, you can't go back and say, hey, I want to change it now. So, so what he's saying is when God makes this promise with Abraham, 430 years later, when he gives the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, it does not change this promise. It doesn't mean that the promise now is received because of the laws. The law is not adding anything to the promise. You've got to distinguish the promise from the law. So you don't get to the promise, you don't get to the promise through the law. Okay? The promise is better than the law. It came before the law. And so he's trying to say it's it's a better, it's priority because of time, but also the, the offspring it's talking about is Christ. Christ is the one who was, the, who was promised, who fulfilled all these, all these things. He is the one that receives the blessing of Abraham, the land, seed, nation. This is our land. This is what he's talking about. The blessing that he's received from, from, from uh, the, that Jesus received from God through Abraham. He's saying, listen, you, they couldn't do it, but Jesus could. He receives all of it. The promise is better than the law. And there's a great parallel passage to this one. 
or I, I guess I should say goes into deeper ideas about this, and that's Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to write down that, read Ephesians chapter 1 later. Because there, that passage is all about this idea of the blessings we get in Christ. And in the blessings he's talking about, if you look at Ephesians 1 verse 3, it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And what does that mean? The blessing, he's not just talking about some random blessing. The blessing that God gave to Abraham is fulfilled totally through Jesus. And he talks about this relationship that in love we are predestined and we are adopted as sons. And, and he goes on and on and on about this amazing relationship. And then he says, and then we've been given forgiveness. Talks about grace that's been lavished upon us. That we receive this, the word inheritance again. And so he then talks about this forgiveness. And then he talks about the power. The power that worked in Christ is now working inside of us. And so this idea of the blessing that we have through Christ. Relationship. Forgiveness. Power. You don't get that through the law. That's what Paul is saying. You don't get that through circumcision. You get that only through faith in Christ. And so, so th that's the main point. In the verses 19 and 20, again, I wish you could go into this more uh, deeply, but he's basically saying this. The way the, the law was given through, an, through angels and an intermediary, it, you compare it to the promise that was given to God, God's a greater mediator. He's a greater promise giver. And so he, every point of the way, he's saying, the promise is better. The promise is better. The promise is better than the law. Okay? The people that are being drawn into Go back to the law after Christ is saying, stop it. You have something better, and it's the promise through Abraham. So that's number one. The number two, two principle is this. The law should lead us to the promise. The law should lead us to the promise. Look at verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now again, the promise that was given to Abraham, you can't get through the law. Okay, And what he's saying is it was the law, though, the principle, the law should lead us to the promise is this. The law was given to teach us our need for salvation. I heard someone put it this way this week, that the law is kind of like a double mirror. It reflects on God, his own righteousness. When we read about the Ten Commandments, we read about the standards that God has for his people, we should see, whoa, God is holy. The holiness of God is expressed in the law to show us how distinct he is, how righteous he is. But it's also another mirror that it reflects to us. We can't do that. We cannot meet that standard. It paints for, the law paints for us this picture that we are in need of atonement and forgiveness, but it cannot actually forgive us. The point of the law is to show you that we are bad and we cannot save ourselves. It's kind of like this. The role of the law is a lot like an MRI machine, okay? Now, maybe you've gone through certain things in life, whether it's you or someone in your family, and, and you start not feeling well, and you've got to go figure out what's wrong. I remember, you know, I've had through myself, other people in my family, we've had, there's been moments in our lives where something is not right physically, and we've got to figure out what's going on. And so what, what does the doctor say? Okay, let's do some tests. We'll do some blood work. We'll do, you know, do, get, let's get an x-ray. Let's do an MRI. The whole point of those, 
of those tests is to find out what's wrong, okay? So you go to the MRI to say, what's, what, what's beneath the surface? What's there cellularly that's either good or bad? But the MRI machine, listen, the MRI machine does an amazing job of telling you what's inside of you. But you know what the MRI machine cannot do? It cannot heal you. The MRI can only tell you what's wrong with you. That's what the law does. The law is meant to show you that you are broken, that you are sinful, that you are not righteous, and that you need a Savior, and that we need God to fix us. That's what the law is given. And so whenever you try to think that the law, what Paul's saying is the law doesn't fix you, the law doesn't heal you, only Christ can do that. And you can't get it through works. And that's, that's the, the third principle they says. The only way to receive the promise is through faith. Faith, not works. This is going to be, Paul's hammering this home, and I know you hear me and Dan talk about this every single week, and maybe you're getting sick and tired of hearing about it, but, but it's not by the works of the law, by our own acts of righteousness that we are saved. Dan did a great job last week explaining how our righteous deeds cannot save us. And look what it says again in verse 22. It says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You get to the access to the promise. Remember I said in the very beginning, the main idea is you and I are invited to partake of this great promise that God's given to us. But you cannot access the promise through your own behavior. You can't access the promise by you obeying lists and rules, coming to church, giving tithes and offerings, being baptized. That's not by how you receive the promise. The promise only is applied through faith. For us saying, I cannot achieve this. I, I, can, only, I can only, by faith, accept what Christ has already done. That is what this is teaching. The promise was fulfilled in Jesus, and we get that promise we access that promise in Jesus through faith. The fourth principle is this. The promise changes our status and identity before God. The promise changes our status and our identity before God. Look at verses 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified. There's that word justified again. We might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In this verse 26, one of the best, amazing verses in the Bible. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He says, through faith, not only do you receive this promise, the blessings of the promise that God gave to Abraham, okay, it has nothing to do with circumcision, nothing to do with what you do. But through faith in Christ, you not, not only receive this promise, but through Christ, you are now all sons. You're all sons. Now, that term sons is very important. That is not, we use the word son today, we use the word the term son today to describe a male biological descendant of, of myself. All right? I've got two sons and one daughter. 
in the Roman culture, the son was a title more than it was just a descriptor of relationship. Yes, it was a descriptor of relationship. But a son held a special title. And and the title meant this, that this male child will receive the inheritance from his father, the fullness of inheritance. And his identity, his, 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 the family crest, everything would be given to the son. See, the son is not just a mere descriptor of relationship. It is a title given of privilege. That's why he says we're all sons. He's talking to every single human being in the room. He's saying whether you're male or female, woman or man, whether you're a slave or free, doesn't matter what's going on. All of us are sons in God, under God through Christ. That's what he's saying. Don't miss out on the unique descriptor of this term. Okay. Now I know we even sing a song. We are all we are the sons and daughters of God. There is an aspect of God as Father that yes, we are His sons and daughters. But listen, son is a title, and it does. And this was an incredible opportunity to open the floodgates to all humanity and say, you now have the opportunity, you now have access to relate to God through Jesus Christ, God the Father, and there's nothing holding you back. There's no, there's no hoops you've got to jump through. There's no like ritual ceremonies you've got. There's, there's no things you've got. There's no people you've got to impress. You can come to the God of the universe through one man, Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you will receive not only the promise, but this new identity, this new standing in God, which is greater than anything that the world has ever known. That's what he is saying. Those, that's the principles, okay? So let's move on to the picture. There's a beautiful picture that, that Paul gives because you might be saying there like, okay, the promise is better than the law, but, but how does that make sense in our thinking, Okay? Now, let's get, again, look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. Underline or circle that word guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, Paul uses this word guardian as a picture to describe the difference between the law and the promise. Okay, This word guardian is a, is a Greek word pedagogue where we get this idea of, uh, in today's terminology, if you hear the term pedagogy, it's the, the idea or the study of how to teach children information. Well, this was a role, this, this term guardian or pedagogue was a unique, had a unique place in Roman culture. Typically, what a family, if a family, uh, you know, had children, especially a, a boy, a male, a male child that they wanted to raise up in the right way, uh, they would be given, they would be assigned a guardian around the age of six years old. Okay, and around five or six years old, and usually these guardians were slaves. They were owned by the by the parents, and they were given to a son, and they had four major roles to perform for this child. The first one was, whenever this child leaves our home, our safe home complex, you are to, you are to go with him to protect him. One of the things that we may not realize is that 
the Roman culture back there was incredibly perverse. And if you sent a child out there by themselves, the chances of them being molested or sexually abused was very high. So part of the whole role of this adult going walking behind this child was to make sure no one touched this child. No one harmed this child. No one molested this child. That was, the, that was one of the primary roles. The second one is that this, this pedagogue or this guardian was to make sure that this kid stayed out of trouble. All right, now, is that a novel concept? Kids getting into trouble? Like how many of you, you know, as parents, when you leave, there, there, there comes a certain point where, you know, you do, you know, you've got to trust your kids to reach a certain level of maturity before you leave them at home by themselves. And so what the, what the, what the guardian's role was, what, whenever they left the home, they were there to make sure the kid, you know, didn't get in any trouble because kids find trouble. And so they're there to make sure, hey, you know, don't, do, don't go over there. Make sure you know, stay back here. Don't say this. Don't do that. Okay? The third, the third role that this guardian did was he taught them the values and the behavior of what their father expected of them. So this guardian was there to show them, no, that's not the, that's not the expectations of how your father wants you to live. Your father wants you to live this way, not that way. And to constantly teach them along the way. And then the fourth role is whenever this child was to go to school, this guardian would sit next to them and make sure, number one, they're paying attention, they're learning. And if they ever had a problem that they didn't understand, the the pedagogue or the guardian would teach them whatever they couldn't get from the teacher. It's kind of like a tutor. And so if you think about what this role was, it was like a combination between a bodyguard a police officer, and a, a teacher, okay? Pretty cool. I mean, if you think about it in our world today, those are amazing roles that people play. Uh, listen, my sister is a teacher. She teaches at Lincoln Charter School. She teaches sixth grade over there. She does a great job. She's a phenomenal teacher. My, her husband, Luke, is a police officer. I mean, they are the all-American family. Teacher, police officer, right? Three kids, a dog. I mean, you can't get any more American than my sister's family. And, and, and so, I listen, I love police officers. I love teachers. Our world would, be, would, not, would not be better off uh, or, or, or would not be as good without teachers and police officers in them. Right? Amen? Right? We need police officers. We need teachers. But here's the thing that Paul's saying. You know what kids need more than police officers and teachers? They need parents. They need parents. I was talking to someone after the, after I shared this illustration uh, with someone who shared with me that they had some they did some ministry in a juvenile detention uh, center in Florida at one point, and they came to me and said that when they were talking with these young people, these young males that were in this juvenile detention center, they had talked to them a lot about their parents. And you know the number one desire that these kids had about their parents, the bio- the people that brought them into this world. They said, we just wish that our parents would want to be our parents, not our friends. Isn't that interesting? There is something that every child needs, and every child needs a parent. And specifically, here in this text, a father. See, Paul is saying this. The law that was given is like a guardian. It's temporary, but you don't need it forever. But you know what those kids need more than ever? They, those kids, when, when that kid's growing up, they need a parent. They need a relationship as a son to a father. 
And only, we can only get that through Jesus Christ by faith. That, so I, I want you to see this picture. And the reason I share that picture is because that should stir up something inside of us to ask this fundamental question. How do you relate to God? Do you see God more as a, you know, authoritarian, ready, ready to write spiritual tickets to you when you mess up? Or, you know, God is this grand, you know, wise teacher up in heaven that wants to, to, to instruct us all on the revelation of what is right and wrong? You see, we can, we can approach God in a number of different ways. And, and I think what's really difficult today, and I, and I know I've struggled with this even in my own family, is, is, but I see this over and over and over again. You raise kids up in the church today. And when you're raising kids up in the church today, my fear is, maybe they see this in the home, maybe they experience this within the body of Christ, but they see God more like this police officer or this teacher, and they fail to see him as a loving heavenly father. I'm not trying to diminish the righteousness of God when I say that. What I am saying is this, what, what draws people to God is not their fear that God's going to kick their butt if they do something wrong. Or, or their, their, their drive towards God is not so that they can be so intellectually wise and smart on the things of religion in this world. That might drive some people. That's what man-made religion is for. But God invites us to come to him through Jesus. And that picture of a father that we see in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, that's the picture that God, that Jesus is saying, that's how I want you to see God. Wanting you to come home to him. Desiring a relationship of love with you. So that's the picture. Finally, let's talk about the practical implications. Okay, so what? So what? The promise is better than the law. The law leads us to the promise. Okay, that's good. You can't get the promise except through faith. And when we express faith, that we receive the promise through faith, that God gives us this new identity, this new standing. How does that change how you live today? Okay? I think it has significant implications for how you live today. Because the first one is this. You now have the freedom to choose what kind of relationship you have with God. You Listen, the, think about what the Judaizers were doing. The Judaizers were saying they were coming in with this message of circumcision, saying, listen, unless you are circumcised, you don't really have it all. You don't really get the fullness of the blessing that God wants to give you. Now, people, put yourself in that first century audience hearing that, okay? That might not be something we hear today, but when you're sitting in that room hearing the teaching of the Judaizers, and they're saying, if you really want to have a special standing with God, you've got to be circumcised. That excludes two major population groups, for, you know, a few, but number one, there's people that couldn't do anything about that. And you know who couldn't do anything about that? Females and slaves, no slave had any autonomy over their body of what to do with it. They would have to get permission from their master to do something like that. They couldn't make that choice. And, and females couldn't do that. And so what the teaching was bringing was this idea, was a false sense of, listen, there is even a, there's a structure of how much God likes you according to what you do. And when he says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He is saying everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, all of you are now all come 
he changes this, this descriptor in verses 23 through 20, 25, talks about the we, he uses we a lot, referring to the Jewish background. But he changes now this, this, these pronouns now in verse 26, that all. And the reason why this is so significant is because this word all is the first word used in the sentence in verse 26. He, Paul's emphasizing the all. I want all of you to understand that you are now loved. You are now all equal at the cross. You now all have this opportunity to relate to God in a way that's, that's greater than you can possibly imagine. See, in, in, our, in our human structures, ever since the fall of Eden, what humans have been doing from that time is we've been dividing. We've been elevating ourselves and trying to diminish other people. My skin color is better than your skin color. My economic status is better than your economic class. My whatever it is, my gender is better than your gender. And we make up this, we create this hierarchy in, these, in our cultures to say, I am better than you. And what Paul is trying to, is, what Paul is describing here is this new way under Christ that all are equal under Jesus. All have value. God doesn't have special children that he cares more about than others. And we can, all of us can have that special relationship with him. One of the things, it was interesting, I, I go on these walks with my sons and uh, since they've been home from college and we just love talking, I mean, we talk about all kinds of things. And one of the things we were talking about the other day, we, we talk about theology, culture, world events, all kinds of stuff. And and we were, on a, we were talking yesterday, and my one son asked me this. He's a very, very interesting question. I thought it was very insightful. And I thought I would ask you the same question. Would you choose to follow Jesus if you already had immortality? Think about that. Would you choose to follow Jesus if our immortality was already secure for you? You see, that gets to the heart of why, a lot of times why we choose God. We do not choose Jesus because, hey, I just want to make sure I live forever in the right place. That's a benefit. But, but if immortality was already given to us, I still believe, and we, as we talked about that, I said, you know, I, I think I would because there's still this missing, this missing longing. Remember, all go back to Eden that we lost in Eden. We, we are starving for the transcendent love and presence of God in our lives. And we get that through Jesus Christ. We can only get that through Jesus Christ. And so his love, his blessing, his closeness, this relationship that we have. Listen, God cares about you. God cares about you. And he's inviting you in to, to be this Son, to have this, to be heirs of this promise. That's an amazing opportunity. The question is, have you taken God up on that offer? Have you taken God up on that offer? It's there. It's available. You can have it. Or do you still choose to, to believe, you still choose to relate to God? He's the police officer upstairs. He's, he's the great teacher. Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. Or will you choose to relate to him as father and son? That's the opportunity that we have in Christ. Don't miss it. What every man-made religion does and what's internal in us is to, tr is to change God into some image of that we like that makes us feel better. 
about ourselves. And so, so we've, got, we've got to let God be who God is. And what he's saying is, I want you to relate to me as Father and Son through Jesus by faith. That's it. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. The second, the second practical implication is this. The world needs to see a greater identity in Jesus in you. I add that in you. The world needs to see a greater identity in Jesus in you. I believe identity is one of the core issues that all of us as human beings struggle with. What I mean by identity is, how do people know me? When people think of Ben Rudolph, what's the first thing they think of? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. When people think of putting your name, what do they think of? That's what, that's what identity is. And what Paul is saying is this identity that we've received. Remember I said through the promise, through faith, we receive this new identity in Christ. And this identity that we receive is so important because what we do as humans is we love to find other identities that make us, that give us meaning, that give us value, that give us purpose. But the problem is these other identities give us meaning, value, and purpose at the expense of other people. People that are not like you, you tend to diminish. And that is not the way of God. We have this amazing, these amazing two verses. In fact, if you read verses, you could cut out verse 27 and 28 and still the, the, the flow of the, verse, of the chapter would, would, would continue on. But verse 27 and 28, Paul addresses this identity issue. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, this verse right here, especially verse 28, is probably one of the most abused, one of the most falsely interpreted verses in the entire Bible, okay? And let me tell you what it does not mean and what it does mean. What it does not mean is that God wants to erase uh, all, all differences or all distinguishing markers about, our, about ourselves, okay? I don't believe that's what it means. I think the world tries to do that. I think the world tries to erase the things that are sacred in us. For example, I believe our... Uh, you know, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek. I believe our nationality, I believe our ethnicity is sacred. Okay? What I mean by that is there's a, God, has, has, God has a love for the nations. When we, when we die and go to heaven, we're not going to be all the same skin color, all the same ethnicity. In fact, the reason I know that is because when, when, God, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, I want you to go make disciples of all nations. And then when you see this picture of the throne room of God in heaven, what does it say there in, in Revelation 5? That it, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnos is there. You see, we don't lose this ethnic difference, this distinguisher about ourselves. Okay, What the world tries to do in the world system is they either try to erase it or elevate it. The, my skin color is better than your skin color. My country is better than your country. And, and, and we, we evaluate ourselves based on that's, that is... There's no purpose in the kingdom of God, okay? 
So what, what God is not, what Paul's not saying is let's erase these distinguishers of ethnicity. Let's not erase this idea of economics. This is not Paul's dissertation on communism. Okay? He's not saying we have to flatline. Everyone needs to make the same amount of money. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you who are free should not look down upon people who are not free. You are no more loved by God by, through Jesus than someone who's a slave. You are all sons. It is this great statement of equality. Okay. And lastly, you are all for, for you are all. I'm sorry. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. That phrase. Think about it. He's not saying your gender is not sacred. Okay? He's not saying it doesn't matter if, you, if you're born a male and you want to become a female. He's not talking about transgender ideology here. He's simply saying your, your gender is sacred. When you die and go to heaven, the gender you were born with it will be the gender you're in heaven in. Okay? That is a guarantee. Your gender is sacred. What he's saying here is this, and it's interesting because he could have said there's, there's no men or, or women. He doesn't say this. It's male and female. Paul literally takes this phrase directly out of Genesis and converts it here. And he says, listen, I want you to understand that in Christ, he's restoring the old ways before the fall. That's what he's doing. And so as the world tries to elevate either my group's better than your group or try to erase the sacred distinctions, the sacred distinctions that God gives to us, okay? If we either elevate or we try to eliminate these things, we're missing out on, on the promise. We're missing out on God's intention. This is not about erasing these things. It's not about elevating these things. What he's saying is all of these distinguishers, all of these things were used by humans to say, my group's better than your group. Jews are better than Gentiles, so you got to be circumcised. Or Gentiles are better than Jews. Or or. Slave, you know, free people are better than slaves. Or male, men are better than women. You, you see, those are messages that culture, that society has taught for millennia. It's in us. You know, this past, past week, I, I, list, I love listening to a lot of podcasts. And someone sent me a podcast this week um, on, uh, it was a conversation between Rain Wilson and Russell Moore. Now, Russell Moore is a, is a Christian theologian. He works for Christianity Today. He's an editor there. And uh, he has a show that he invites people from other faiths to have conversations with where they just dialogue. They talk about the similarities. They talk about the differences. Um, but they ask each other questions. And they, neither of them back down on what they believe. But it's, it's, a, it's a great way of showing how you can have civil dialogue and still disagree, which I think is needed in today's culture. And Rain Will, he had Rain Wilson on there. If you know Rain, who Rain Wilson is, he's an actor in Hollywood that, that got his fame through the show The Office. Okay? He's Dwight Schrute from The Office. And if you have no idea what that show is, you're missing out on one of the greatest shows ever made. Okay? I have a special love for that show because I, I'm from Scranton. And so, like, I just, I love, and Dwight Schrute is one of these characters that I instantly fell in love with because we all work with a guy like Dwight. Okay, just super rule-driven, you know, just you know, obnoxious. And, and Rain Wilson is someone from the Baha'i faith. And one of the things that Rain, as they are talking about each other's faith, Rain Wilson has, you could tell he has studied, he actually wrote a book on faith uh, to the younger generation. And, and I'm not recommending you read it. I'm just saying he, this is what he's, he's totally studied. Uh, he's done a lot of study on, on organized religion. 
And he said something that was so profound. Someone who's not part of the Christian faith made this incredible observation. He said, when you, he said the most amazing thing about Christianity is that when you look at the, at the, the centuries after Jesus came, you see something that you never saw in human history before. You see people come together. You see, you know, you see Jewish scholars and, and, and Greek slaves, and you see you know, former prostitutes, and you see all these different people coming together under one roof, sharing a meal together, and looking at each other as equals. He said, never before in human history had that ever happened ever. And you know what? He's right. And that's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is to, is to break down, as it says in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility that exists within the human cultural structures of our day. The, the dividing walls of hostility that says, I'm better than you are. This issue of identity is permeates our culture today in so many ways. For example, next month is Pride Month. Okay, And, and let me just say this. Um, I'm, if you are someone that struggles with same-sex attraction or has you know, gender dysphoria issues, I, let me just say this. I mean, we want to love you. If you're here, we want to love you. We want to walk with you. We want to point you to Jesus. We want to help you be restored fully in Jesus. But, but let me just say this. The LGBTQ uh, agenda is one. The, the reason why it's so dangerous is not so much that it teaches a false and perverse ideology of sexuality. And gender. The problem, one of the major problems of that ideology is it says, this is my primary identity. I want to be known by this. And what Paul is saying is, listen, well, you can take all of these things and say, this is how I want you to know me. Okay? I want you to know me by, by my sexuality. I want you to know me by my gender. But all right, so now I just talked about all those people out there like, yeah, get them, Pastor Ben. How about our politics, right? See, some of us in this room are more known by our politics than we are by our faith in Christ to our friends and neighbors. Again, go back to that question. How am I primarily known by others? What is my identity? What Paul says there, verse, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The reason why we believe in this church in credo baptism in a public display of, of following Jesus is when someone is baptized, immersed underwater, they're saying, I'm identifying with the, with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is now my story. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I want the world to know that I want people to know me first and foremost as a follower of Jesus Christ. We need people today. The reason why this is so important today is that for those of us in this room, there are many times we are known more by things that are external, the, the, our fanhood, our, our families, our, you know, you know, our, where we live, where we work, our occupations, our political preferences, our, whatever it might be, we are known by that thing and not by Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying if you, if to, to understand this, to understand the promise that we have now been given, we're called sons, man, that changes everything. It changes how I see everyone. It changes how I treat everyone. Because under the cross, 
we are all equal. We all have the same access. And now we have a common identity. So there are things about me that maybe the world looks and says, I can look at someone who has different skin color, different ethnicity, different gender, different everything about them. But guess what? If we are both followers of Jesus, we are brothers or sisters in Christ. And we have more in common than the world can even fathom. We as Christians today should be modeling that and should be living that out. The question is, will we? Two questions, and then we're done. Number one, how do you relate to God? How do you relate to God? Do you relate to God through this access, through the promise, through the, through the inheritance to be heirs of the promise? Do you relate to God through that as sons? Or do you still relate to him as the police officer, the guardian, someone who's, you know, there to you know, make sure that I, I behave? Or do you see him as father? If you, if you don't know how to relate to God as father, maybe you're sitting there saying, man, I have a hard time doing it just because of my own issues with my own dad. Listen, come talk to us. We have people out in the lobby with red lanyards, our prayer team, myself included. We would love to talk with you about what it means to know God as father through Jesus. Second question I have is this. What is your primary identity in? What is your primary identity in? How do you want people to know you? How, what is your identity out there? It says a lot about who you are.